Greetings. Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. We hope that you're having a dry day on this Wednesday. Here in Oklahoma, we have had so much water that I'm about ready to build some sort of ark. We need some sunshine to dry up all the rain, and the itsy-bitsy spider can come down the drain again, as the story goes. Well, welcome to our study today. We are continuing in our study through the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 11, and here in a few moments, Brother Brian will lead us in today's discussion. But before we do that, I'm going to ask Paul, if he would, to share with you how you might participate in today's study. Certainly, I'll be glad to do that, John. Uh, as we think about that, you might consider just uh, how you might watch the Truth Factor discussion. You can do that on the YouTube page. It's slash Truth Factor Live, or you can do that live on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Truth Factor Live, or search for those for that designation. If you don't want to send us an email, you might send that to questions at truthfactor.com. That's questions at truthfactor.com. And some of us will be monitoring our email to see if something like that would come through. Now, if you'd like to make a comment or ask a question through a live chat, we also have that available. And that's at the YouTube page and on the Facebook page. And again, that's Truth Factor Live. And then we do have a Twitter handle, which is Truth Factor Live as well. So those are the keywords, Truth Factor Live, unless you're sending the email, in which case it's truthfactor.com. And so we hope that you will join with us today. Uh, we always enjoy uh, hearing from people all over the country, sometimes all over the world, as we study the Word of God together. Paul, I appreciate that. I'll tell you, I did something yesterday. I went ahead and registered the, the domain name truthfactor.live. So eventually I'll have it set up so that even the emails will come to truthfactor.live. And even just for the kicks and giggles, as some people say, if you want to watch the shortcut to the live viewing page, will be live.truthfactor.live. Isn't that cool, Brian? That is uh, certainly you, cool. You took uh, over Paul's spot. <laughs> from a uh, nerd uh, perspective, so I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. You took over Paul's spot, so I figured I'd talk to you then since Paul... Yeah, well, might as well. Might as well. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, Brian, since we have you here, why don't you go ahead and start this, uh, today's study? Absolutely. And John, in just a second, I, I, I'm going to ask you to do some reading for us in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. One of the unusual characteristics of the book of Acts is there's a lot of repetition of, uh, of the stories in here, of the things that are going on. Um, we'll actually have Paul's conversion recounted nearly three times. We have here uh, the conversion of Cornelius recounted twice. Um, there's a couple of uh, valuable tools that we get out of that. For one thing, whenever we see slight differences in those accounts, they both give us additional facts to what's happening uh, that, that we can kind of contrast them to. But it also helps us to understand just exactly how we're meant to perceive uh, some of the things that are going on. I know in our language, when something is in a quotation marks, we assume that it is a direct, exact copy or statement of something someone says. But, but by looking at these parallel or repeated accounts in the book of Acts, we can understand that a lot of times what we are seeing are conversations that have been uh, uh, abbreviated or uh, they've been paraphrased for our understanding, divinely paraphrased, of course, by... Uh, by the Holy Spirit, but it helps us to understand that so that we're not confused or anything like that. So we're going to be recounting here again in just a few moments the conversion of Cornelius, but we need to start off with a very important circumstance that that is the first three verses of Acts chapter 11. So John, I've asked you, if you would, to, uh, uh, to read those first three verses for us. All righty, Brian, let's see. The Apostle not the apostle, Luke, records. It says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. So to uh, start off here, uh, we have a chat question that I put in there. Uh, the question is for, for our listeners, our viewers, and you know anybody who wants to make a comment about this, do you think Peter had some idea before going to Cornelius of the contention that would arise among the brethren? Uh, 
which is certainly the circumstance we read about in these first three verses uh, that that there is a there is a the uh, the term used here they took issue with him uh, that term in verse two indicates they took a very strong heated issue with him and so the question is do you think Peter knew that that was what he would face when he came back and that's for our chat group uh, to the to the members of our panel my first question is this the the men of Jerusalem confront Peter and the question is did Peter sin by going to uh, uncircumcised men or Gentiles and eating with them. Was that a sin? And maybe I'll qualify that by saying, was that a sin under the law of Moses or was that a sin in the law of Christ? There was no sin involved here. Uh, it was a custom. We, we can find by way of looking at the life of Jesus that if this had been law under Moses, Jesus would have broken the law when he went to the Syrophoenician woman. He would have broken the law, having given healing to the servant of a centurion. Uh, he would have uh, he would have at least compromised the law of Moses when he talked to the woman at Sychar. The Jews had this pious. It was more Pharisees, Sadducees, and that group that had a pious attitude that said. Jews are better than anybody else, and so we're going to prove it and have no association with Gentiles uh, of any part. There wasn't any law binding here. Very good, Mike. That's that's my understanding, too, that uh, the law of Moses did not expressly forbid uh, eating with Gentiles, although in a generic sense they were to keep themselves separate. Uh, that wasn't on a personal basis. Such they, as weren't to, they, they weren't to marry into other nations. That's the specific commandment, isn't it? Yeah, that's... And, and broken that law. But to, uh, to to associate with these of other nations was not in itself sinful at all. Uh, if you go back into the Old Testament, you can find several places where Israel uh, made alliances with other nations for the purpose of servitude. Um, they, they, they made slaves of some of those other nations. Um, I never can remember which nation it was that by deception was accepted into Israel after Joshua and those came into Canaan land. Uh, by deception, they ended up counted uh, with Israel, but they were a foreign nation. Um, it, but, but again, to answer your question, there was no law of Moses to that. Thomas, uh, he, he's issued that he's got a response here as well. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I I think you all have kind of covered it. I, I mean, basically, the whole point was under uh, under the old law, they were to be aware of the nations around them and not allow them to unduly influence them. That's the bottom line. And that applies to us as Christians as well. But but you've also got to understand, and we kind of deal with this in this chapter, there was a great commission to go into all the world. And, and you cannot do that by by building walls and avoiding uh you know and avoiding the people of the world it's just you don't let them influence you so. that's a great comment tom uh tom let me throw this question at you if this is okay um you you kind of made a good point to say what about us as christians today in our relationships with with what we might describe as the gentiles of our covenant that is to say unbelievers are we authorized to have personal friendship relationships with uh, believers, because as you said, Second Corinthians chapter six talks about not to uh, be unequally yoked with those who are unbelievers. Are we authorized to personally have personal friendships with unbelievers? And I would answer that absolutely. As a matter of fact, I would even go as far as to say that we we kind of need to do that a little bit. You know, uh, again, you know, we don't need to become like the Amish or the Shakers or the. Or, or, or some kind of a community that just a commune that just isolates themselves from the world. How can you reach others if you don't do that? Paul over in First Corinthians talked about how he became all things to all men. You know, he associated with others to teach them. And and Mike even mentioned, you know, you've got the examples of, of Jesus. Uh, you know, he, uh, uh, he was criticized for associating with sinners. Now, he was associating with quote-unquote sinners, you know, if you want to look at that definition of it, uh, but he didn't let them influence them. And, and that's the point. Are there, are there unbelievers that we should avoid? I believe the answer to that is yes. You know, there are times 
there are times when we need to draw lines. Uh, the, the second Corinthians tells you, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And I think that's the, the key to it. Don't put yourself in a situation where they have an advantage. And if you've got somebody that's just outright ungodly and has no interest in the truth and wants to corrupt, yes, avoid that type of a person. But you, you still have to go out and find people to teach. Very good. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? I, I, I see we've got a comment in chat that kind of pertains, uh, it looks like going a little bit back to uh, our comment earlier about whether or not it was a sin to eat uh, with Gentiles. And if we can pull that up for a second out of our, there we have it, uh, out of the YouTube page. Gregor Hinckley says, of the circumcision, uh, meaning the Jews, indicates the Jews who thought, rightly so, had been uh, have been God's chosen. They ignored the prophecies of the whole world being saved. Peter even exhibits this himself out of habit. Um, what Gregory, Gregory is saying is very interesting because it, this is a this is a problem throughout the book of Acts, the strife that comes up between the Jew and the Gentile and um, uh, the, the conflicts that arise because Jews had for 1,500 years been given the command to, to, to keep themselves separate to a degree and the enforcement of that, especially in the time of Christ, had had become something of a, as we see here, a bit of a problem as well. So, so we want to consider that too. Are there any other comments that we want to bring in? Anybody else have any thoughts to add to that before we go back to our chat question? Well, Brian, I do know, uh, as I, you know, thinking about what you were saying, that there there are some uh, brothers I've known who have joined, you know, in some organizations or some volunteer kinds of things and in the community <clears throat> uh, so that they can get to know people uh, to be able to share the gospel. Sometimes as maybe uh, we, we move into a community uh, that we, um, we don't always know everyone that everyone else knows. The preacher doesn't always know uh, those folks. And so it sometimes helps to just uh, whether it's, you know, uh, I have a friend who's in rotary. I have a friend who was on volunteer fire department uh, just uh friend who gets together with the guys down at uh, the restaurant for breakfast on certain mornings of the week just to get to know people that are not members of, uh, of the local church so that you have an opportunity to, to share a message of the gospel. You, you're not just out doing constant cold calls, and uh, but instead you've developed relationships which allows you to share the gospel with others. Um. You know, so, so you guys are bringing up some important points. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I've known a couple of brethren who suggested that Christians shouldn't have friends uh, that were unbelievers, that the unequally yoked commandment speaks to that language. Uh, nobody mentioned it, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul speaks about having friends who are unbelievers when he suggested they might invite you to come eat with them and you would be, uh, you are authorized to do so. There, there's also kind of a, maybe an inference, not necessarily a necessary inference, but an inference that Paul had friends that were unbeliever when it speaks about his friendship with the Asiarchs. And the Asiarchs are very likely not believers uh, because of the because of the uh, type of position that they were in. So I think it's kind of interesting that even Paul himself may have fostered some friendships among non-believers. Uh, I would say almost certainly as, as, uh, as Tom said a moment ago, so that he could be all things to all men. Um, I think we're ready to go to the chat, unless unless yeah. there's any other comments. Yeah, just real quick, Brian. You know, you go to that passage there in Second Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The key word there is unequally. It does not say never yoke yourself with an unbeliever. That's a fantastic comment, Tom. Thanks. That's actually a really good observation. Sometimes when I think about that, there, there are uh, my closest friends, are going to be Christians uh, because they're the people that I need to be able to go to when I'm uh, hurting, when I'm troubled, when I need advice. Uh, and, and we need to be able to have an understanding on the same basis, those people who are closest to me. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I don't have friends within the community uh, who are who are not Christians. Uh, I, I see that in the life of Jesus, that he often w was with uh, large multitudes in different people's houses, uh, different circumstances. But then he took time uh, to separate himself away. And even in the garden, he, you know, he takes the, the 12, or I suppose I should say the 11, and they, they go. And then he even takes Peter, James, and John a little further, uh, so, some especially close friends.
friends who were uh, of the same thinking as, as he was uh, to try to help and, and to benefit from them. And so uh, I, I think that certainly having friends of the world, is, I, I don't believe that's a, a sinful thing uh, to have friends who are not necessarily Christians. But as we look at that, uh, we'd understand that in doing and looking at that, that we're not always, um, that's not always our best choice for the circumstance. That's a great, uh, some great comments. And I really appreciate these thoughts, guys. Um, we'll jump over to the chat room now. Uh, Gregor's, Gregor's answer kind of uh, came back, and I'm not sure if Gregor was also thinking of the question that was asked too. Uh, and Gregor, I misunderstood. I do apologize. And I'll see you tonight. You can let me know then. But uh, I, the question was, do you think Peter had some idea before going to Cornelius of the contention that would arise among the brethren? Uh, let me just throw that to our um, to our panel. What do you think? Yes or no? You think Peter knew that when he came back, he was going to have to do a lot of explaining? Yes, I, I think he figured something out. I I I. I believe that when he was having his vision and wondering about it, and then he's told to go, and as we're going to find here in a minute, go doubting nothing, I think he figured it out. I think there's a reason he went and found six witnesses to go with him. He knew something was going to happen. Tommy, you brought up actually the point that I think about, that he brought witnesses with him. And my, you know, my thinking was whenever, you know, there's a good lesson here. Whenever you're doing something that you think, there might be some contention about uh, having other people go with you to bear witness of those things might be a pretty smart move. You know that. Well, doesn't the Bible kind of give that as a, uh, as, as a hint in Matthew 18, you know, I, I realize it talks about dealing with a sinning brother. You go to him by yourself first, but, but if that doesn't work, you take some witnesses with you and, uh, and you get it documented because the one-on-one, -on -one the one-on-one -on -one things are, are, you know, one-on-one uh, -on -one responses sometimes are difficult to establish credibility. Great, great thought, great comment about that. Um, uh, John, do you have any thoughts to add to this? You know, there's something to remember with Peter. Um, the events that we see here um, in Acts chapter, well, we saw in Acts chapter 10, all this is beginning a big push that will bring Judaizing teachers in um, and we see that culminating in Acts chapter 15. Now, what's interesting is depending on when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, some point between Acts 10 and Acts 15, Peter finds himself where he's facing James and the Jews of the circumcision approaching, and he withdraws himself from eating with the Gentiles to avoid a confrontation or, or whatever, you know, depending on how you look at it. And what I find interesting about Peter is Yes, I think Peter fully expected, and I think that's why he took extra people with him, or a good reason why. But then we see what happens when Peter's not on his guard, and when he's caught off guard by the Jews of the circumcision, as Paul recounts in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, excellent bringing in another thought there, uh, John, by the way, that grabbing that Galatians 2 uh, really kind of really kind of gives a little more three dimension to the to the circumstances that are going on. And I would say my thinking is, I don't know if everybody agrees, that we're talking about the next three chapters of Acts all kind of falling into that, even that Galatians 2 kind of conversation. That this, yeah. this isn't going to be put to sleep by Peter's comments. We're going to, we're going to be dealing with these issues for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to go on and do a little bit of reading here. And Mike, would you be willing to read for us? Um, I'd like you to read Acts 11, verses 4 through 18. And this is a recount of what we read in Acts chapter 10. So, uh, Mike, if you would be willing to do that for us. Happy to do so, and I'm going to put a whammy on all of you. I'm going to be reading from New American Standard today. Oh, wow. I, I am yeah. surprised. I, uh, well, I'm uh, not converted. I'm just reading. <laughs> <laughs> but Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by the four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beast and the crawling creatures and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. 
But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. It happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at the moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. <clears throat> These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angels standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, and you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also that repent the repentance that leads to life. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, put a discussion question out there for our uh, chat rooms to consider. And the question is, in what ways is Peter's defense a lesson on how to reply when, when brethren or tempers are running hot? Uh, which, again, we're inferring that from those first three verses, that the brethren are pretty pretty upset about this. How is it that Peter kind of gives us, in a general sense, uh, an example of how we are supposed to present ourselves whenever, whenever brethren are upset? A um, couple of things to consider here, and uh, throw this out to our, uh, to our group here, first of all. What does Peter mean whenever he says that the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning? I know we talked about this a little bit last week, and it's just, I think it was such a good point last, or not last week, a couple of weeks ago. And I felt like it was such a good point then that it's worth considering yet again. What, uh, what did Peter mean when he said that? Well, I think there's, there's a, an obvious answer here, Brian. The apostles received the, the uh, Holy Spirit. And we generally refer to that as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the immersion of it. That's in Acts chapter uh, 2, where we find that happened. It came without the laying on of any hands of any individual. When we next read about the Spirit being involved in such things, Peter says to the audience in Jerusalem, to be to repent and be baptized in the name of the Holy in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we studied that and found that the gift is the promise of eternal life. And he says so at, at Acts two and verse thirty nine. We then read in Acts eight of the apostle uh, Peter being in Samaria and laying hands on various individuals. The, a gift of the Spirit was given. I think we need to, to factor in that with Cornelius, the first obvious thing is that his gift, which was obviously speaking in tongues, came without the laying on of hands, and it was done so in a manner that allowed Peter to know absolutely that God has accepted Gentiles for repentance and baptism. Point out quickly as well that this gift coming on without the laying on of hands did not redeem him, did not wash away his sins, because even with this gift, Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So to be quite blunt about it, the only reason for this gift coming to Cornelius's, uh, to Cornelius and his household, the gift of speaking in tongues and coming without the laying on of hands, was to give Peter absolute assurance that he now could command them to go ahead and be baptized in the name of the Lord, that God had put no distinction between Jew and Gentile for the commandment of salvation. Mike, let me let me ask you a question, put you on the spot a second. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks about the, the seven things that uh, bring unity, one Lord, one faith, uh, those statements. What in that passage uh, makes it clear to us that we don't, we don't have the Holy Spirit baptism anymore? Paul said there is one baptism. 
Very good. That that's a baptism is for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's a pretty straightforward statement. Uh, one I like to point to oftentimes to suggest Absolutely. why we don't look for that. Mike, that was a great analysis of that uh, passage. Let me ask you guys: What do you think the significance uh, of when when Cornelius spoke with Peter and he makes the statement that Peter was going to speak the words by what to you by which you will be saved? Uh, what is the significance in that statement? Uh, and I realize that's kind of an open, generic question, but maybe maybe you can guess where I'm leading with that. Read my well, mind. the fact that he well, says the words, uh, and when you think about that, and that uh, the message of the gospel is communicated through words, uh, and so here they, even though they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, that he did preach, uh, and uh, I know that uh, there's there's some difference in thinking among some of our brethren as to what the measure here was, and I'm not sure that that I can give you the definitive answer on that. But when you look here, in any case, there were the the gospel message comes through the preaching of words. So in another passage, is called earthen vessels, uh, and we are allowed to share this message. And when the message is taught and is preached and people hear and believe and obey, that's how salvation comes. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and another point that I would add to that is uh, this clearly points out that even though the angel appeared to Cornelius, that he still wasn't saved. He, uh, he, he had to hear it. And I think we've made the point for it. And just remember this in the book of Acts. There is not a single act of conversion that did not involve what Paul was talking about, a man uh, teaching. You know, words being conveyed from a human being instructing people what they need to do. That includes Paul, who the Lord appeared to on the road to Damascus. That includes Cornelius on this occasion, and you find it wherever you find it. Uh, it was always a man doing the teaching. And fantastic. that's a message for us. Tom, that is, that is fantastic, and that's right on. Uh, and, uh, boy, you guys, you guys, right where I was thinking too, the importance here is that whatever an angel coming to him, the Holy Spirit, uh, coming on him in some miraculous way, none of those things are what saved him. What saved him were the words that Peter spoke that he obeyed. Um, Isn't it interesting, Brian, that, uh, he was already a praying man? That's right. He was a God fearing, righteous, praying man. And yet, still not saved. That, he was a man. Uh, he was a man of great faith. Yeah. He was a man of great uh, righteous acts in his life, full of good works. Uh, yeah. And uh, here he was, someone praying. And then we we know that some today will say, and I'm not not trying to pick on someone who's not here, but some will say today that here is a situation where uh, someone just needs to pray, uh, and then they can be saved. They'll they'll in fact give them a a written prayer that they can just pray that same prayer and then they can be saved. What we read here is that Cornelius was already a praying man. When we read of the conversion of Paul, we'll see the same thing, that he was already praying. Uh, and so people who are praying, uh, for them to be saved, there's more that they need to do. And here we see that Cornelius and his house, they were baptized uh, after hearing the preaching of the gospel. Exactly right. Exactly right. Boy, guys, these are great. these are great thoughts. Uh, let me let me throw another question at you for this. Uh, actually, John, I think uh, did I uh, see that you had a comment? Yes. I just want to touch on wording here real quick. Um, when you look up the definition of the word faith, uh, the Greek word translated as faith, one of the words you'll see is persuasion, and this this piggybacks what they everybody was saying about the words. We are to use the words to try to persuade someone. We use the word belief, and I think that's a proper term. But I think the concept of persuading someone, convincing someone, is another another set of words to use in reference to why we have to use the words of the Bible. Because God's not going to persuade them. They've got to be persuaded by the evidence that they see, by the arguments that they see. And we can't do that without the words of the gospel. Paul said exactly that, John, when he said that we're ambassadors for Christ and we persuade men. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's exactly the case. Yes, yeah. it's fantastic, fantastic stuff, guys. Um, let me ask you a question. They seem kind of surprised there in verse eighteen that uh, God had granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Should they have been surprised? No. Why not, Tom? Well, 
Well, uh, well, we know that the Jews had, uh, they, they had, they had a colorblindness or whatever word you want to use, you know, uh, even throughout the life of Jesus, the dealing with the Gentiles. But, but, you know, in Acts chapter two and verse 17, uh, you find there as, as, uh, as Peter is preaching that sermon. And uh, let me get over there real quick here. Acts two and verse 17. Uh, the point that, oh, well, well, the point that is made there is, uh, as he's quoting from Joel, he's making the point that it's going to, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all nations. And, and so I, I ultimately see that, uh, you know, even from the very beginning, the, the obvious implication was that this was intended to go into all the world. And, and you could add another verse to that in Acts chapter one and in verse number nine, where Jesus gives the instructions. You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth or world. You're muted there, Brian. That's a great comment, Tom. Uh, and really, uh, again, the, you pointed to the Great Commission. I was thinking we could have gone back to the Old Testament and seen the, the prophecies of that. I was even thinking in Acts chapter 2, when Peter made the comment to say, that this this promise is for you, your children, and those who are far off, that later in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would define the term you who are far off as the Gentiles. I've always thought it's interesting because it, it seems to indicate that Peter was declaring the gospel would be for everybody, but didn't really understand that that's what he was declaring at the time. Uh, one of those perhaps prophetic statements, uh, inspired statements that he himself didn't appreciate uh, at the moment. Um, I see we actually had a comment that I missed uh, about our in our last discussion in our Facebook page uh, from Tony Richline. It actually kind of pertained to our conversation. I thought it's it's a good one, and I thought it, we ought to bring it up, uh, even though it pertains to what we were just finished talking about a second ago. If we're able to bring that in, Tony Richline had said in our in our Facebook chat, uh, talking about the angel that came to to Cornelius. The angel didn't have the words. It needed to be presented by a man. And uh, Tony's comment there is important to understand because that's one of those themes or patterns of the New Testament that, uh, that what we see a lot of times or what we see all the time is angels would come forward and they would uh, speak the idea of the message of, 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 that a message was coming, but they would never actually preach the gospel. The Ethiopian eunuch, uh, you know, here, elsewhere, uh, even even to even to Paul himself, it was constantly made clear that men had to preach the gospel. Romans chapter 10, the apostle Paul would make that clear again, that the gospel is preached by men. Uh, I even think maybe, and this this might be a bit more of my, my own feeling on this, that when the language of Romans chapter 1 speaks about from faith to faith, that there might be some sense of that there as well. So, uh, Tony, that was a really good comment. I really appreciate that. Um. Let's go back, if it's okay, to our chat room comment, because uh, I do see we have a response to that in our chat room in, in YouTube. Um, we have a lot of chat rooms, so sometimes keeping on top of all of them is uh, a little hard, but we're so grateful for uh, participation. So in YouTube chat, we've got Gregor Hinckley who uh, responded to the question, what way is Peter's defense a lesson? How to reply when brethren or tempers are hot? Uh, Gregor's response was this. Gregor said, Peter proved through the teachings of Christ, that the Gentiles were being accepted by God, his proof being the Holy Spirit manifested in them. So the offer of salvation had to be made, baptism. You know what's neat about what Gregor said is that Gregor is basically saying that Peter's defense was made by, by the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Well, today, everything that we defend is also made by the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And that was perhaps a, an underlying theme I wanted us to grasp. Peter couldn't just say, hey, it happened. You've got to believe me. Peter said, uh, I always like what it says there in verse four, that it says that Peter proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence. Whenever we relate the gospel to others, that's what we're doing. We're explaining the, the message of God in an orderly sequence, not our emotions, not our feelings but the details of what the Holy Spirit has made known to us through his word. So I, I felt like that was an important point, and Gregor grabbed exactly where I was thinking with that. So I'm grateful for that. Are there any final comments before we move on? 
I do see we had one last comment in our Facebook chat. Let me grab that if that's okay. In our Facebook chat, we had one more comment by Tony. Uh, I may have missed it a second ago. Tony makes a statement. Remember, they didn't have the full revelation at that time like we do. And Israel was God's chosen people. So I could see how they were surprised. Uh, agreed, Tony. That uh, that actually is a really good comment there. It, it really is understandable, uh, their surprise to some degree. But it's interesting that their own prophets, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, spoke repeatedly of, of a covenant or of the promise that would come to the Gentiles. So, you know, to some degree, there was also a sense of blindness too about that, that inclusion of the Gentiles. Paul, I'm gonna ask you to do some reading for us if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna ask you to read Acts chapter 11. Uh, well, I'm giving you a short one. So Mike may be upset he had to read so long and you've only got a few verses, but would you read verses 19, 20, and 21 for us? Be happy to do that. Acts 11, 19, 20, and 21. The scripture there says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So I'm uh, going to put out a chat question real quick. According to the New Testament pattern, there is a specific order in which the gospel is preached to people. What is that pattern and how is it seen here? I hope that's not too ambiguous a question. You might uh, be able to understand what we're asking about here. Something that is related multiple times throughout the New Testament of the pattern of how the gospel was to be preached. Um, let me ask you guys a question. What do you think about this? It, it identifies that the, the preaching here was being done by men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Why do you think, or do you think there's significance of the Bible giving us that detail in regards to the, the circumstances of the gospel message going out to the Gentiles? I realize that, that, again, is one of these questions where you've got to read my mind to know what I'm thinking a little bit. But do you guys see any significance to that statement that it's those men that are the ones that are going to be preaching the message to the Gentiles? Yeah, well, yeah, you know, uh, something that comes to my mind on that is, uh, you know, when you think about them going to Jerusalem, those in Jerusalem, it was a predominantly Jewish uh, community. Whatever Gentiles they interacted with in Jerusalem were, for the most part, the enemy. <laughs> I mean, the Roman soldiers and so on, and at least they viewed them as the enemy. But you know what? You get away from you get away from uh, Judea uh, and, and even Galilee. And you get a little further away, you're going to be interacting with Gentiles on a daily basis. And even though you're a Jew and you have your Jewish convictions, you got to deal with Gentiles. And so they probably were more open to the idea of sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And and then when all of a sudden things start happening and and you can see that the that the hand of God approves of what they're doing, they might have taken it further. So that's something that comes to my mind with that. Uh, Tom, that, that's exactly what I think is going on here. I think what we're trying to, what we're supposed to understand is that maybe the, the brethren in Judea who were Jews living among Jews weren't used to engaging with Gentiles uh, yep. as, as those brethren who lived in, uh, in the Gentile world were. And so I suspect that, that that circumstance may be exactly what the point is. Anybody else have any comment on that? Brian, there's another little clue to that at verse 19. You remember uh, that it states that so uh, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose uh, in connection with Stephen. It goes clear back to Acts chapter eight and verse four. There's a lot that transpires uh, in in our reading between Acts chapter eight verse four and Acts chapter eleven verse eighteen. There, there's a lot that transpires here. Cornelius uh, is converted, uh, and the gospel is here. But keep in mind, we're the ones that say that Cornelius uh, is the first Gentile to the gospel. That may not be particularly true. There were proselytes in the city of Jerusalem that heard the gospel. We find them listed in Acts chapter 2. When the disciples scattered abroad, they went everywhere preaching the word. And as Thomas rightly pointed out, there had to have been interaction with Gentiles. So 
come then to verse 20, where you find these uh, these men of Cyprus and Serene uh, speaking to the Hellenists, the Greeks, it, it's quite possible that they're sharing the gospel with them just as Peter was told to share it with Cornelius as well. Peter and Cornelius is a special case here where you find that God had to instruct Peter, go ahead and baptize them. But the discussion of Jesus being the Christ, I don't think you could have stopped that. That's what everybody went preaching. And then the, it would have led to the obedience of the gospel of Christ as well. Michael, you said something I think is actually kind of important. It was a, I took the question out of our question, but the question was, is it possible or could it be that these were the first Gentile converts? Because there is no real order given between Acts 10 and 11 as to which one happened first. That's uh, correct. And I've, I've wondered about that. And I've, I've wondered if the sense is that Cornelius is the true litmus test because he was the most righteous Gentile you could have found, I would I would suggest. I, I'd have no problem with that, Brian. Yeah. I've always struggled with the fact that there were proselytes that heard that gospel on Pentecost. Proselytes, do what you will with them. By blood, they're still Gentiles. Uh, and and so to to make a chronology list here and say Cornelius was number one, I'm not sure we can bind that. I think what we need to do with Cornelius is to show that this gives God's approval to Gentiles obeying the gospel, and we can't go much farther than that with it because of the instances that obviously happened through an apostle and the house of Cornelius. That's an excellent comment. Any other comments, guys? I've got just a, a quick one, Brian. It looks like we have a, a parallel reading here. Not a parallel reading, parallel occurrence. So we um, so you have Acts chapter 8 and the and the and uh, everybody scattered abroad. Now we've come back to that event in Acts chapter 8. Yes. And um, what's going on here is while uh, Philip is going down through Samaria and Peter and John comes down through Samaria and then Peter's called to go to Joppa and then talk to Cornelius at the same time, you have some people who have gone out, and they're preaching to the Jews only. But then you have other guys who are in Antioch, and I think this is Antioch in Judea, not Pisidia. If it's Antioch in Judea, here they are, find themselves teaching Gentiles. And this would be just as shocking to the to everybody. And it could have been what, it could have been what instigated the big discussion with Peter at the start of Acts chapter 11. Because it wasn't just Peter who had done this, although he's a big wig and, and he's done it, so to speak. But you also have these other guys, probably at the same time, teaching Gentiles in Antioch of Judea. Judea. I had never thought about well, that before, but that's a good point. I, yeah, and, that. and John, in, in following with that, keep in mind that this is exactly the way Jesus said it needed to be. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. While we may struggle a little bit about Cornelius and these men of Cyprus and Cyrene and all, the fact of the matter is God saw to it that his plan was was exactly followed and un, unveiled to mankind in, in precise fashion. And speaking, speaking for Gentiles in this family anyway, I'm certainly glad it was preached to the Gentiles. That makes These sense. are great points, guys. Uh, really important points, too. So I appreciate that. Um, jumping back to our, our chat room question, I, I don't think we got an answer to our question. And it, again, it might have been because it was too ambiguous of a question. But according to the New Testament pattern, what is the specific order of the preaching of the gospel? Anybody want to venture the guess on that or venture the answer? Where To whom was it to go first? Maybe I, if I said it like that, that's too easy. But. Jews first, then, that, to, then to the Greeks. That's, that's and, the answer I was looking for. And, 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 that exactly. and interestingly, Brian, each one, Jew and Gentile, heard the same as, as we like to say, the five steps, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be immersed. And and then following that, being faithful unto death, of course. But the, the order of who got it first, that was Jews first and also to the Greek, Roman 1, verse 16. Mike, your point is important because there are some denominations today that teach that Acts 2.38 was a command only given to the people of Israel and is not given to the Jews today. In fact, that's a popular Protestant doctrine among many uh, in order to teach that we don't have to be baptized today. So right. uh, that's an important, a very important point to understand. It is. Can I, can I bullet point something, Brian, real quick? Yeah, please. 
All right, just a minor modification. He went to the Jews of Judea first, of the house of Judah. And then they went to the Jews of the house of Israel. That's when they went mm-hmm. to Samaria. And then Samaria. they went to the Gentiles. You know, I, I what I like is you're, of course, going back to Acts chapter 1, where Jesus said this was going to be the order, the progression of the preaching of the gospel. Yeah. So uh, that's an important, uh, a real important point there, John. Thanks. Um, let's go ahead and I'm going to ask Tom, if he would to read up through the rest of the chapter for us. Tom, would you read verse chapter 11, verses 22 to the end of the chapter, verse 30? Okay, 22 through the end of the chapter here. And again, I'm reading from the New King James. It says, The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he sought him, or he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Thank you very much, Tom. We've thrown a chat question into the chat room to think about for a few moments. Uh, that Acts chapter 11, verse 26 marks the first time the word Christian is used, um, telling us that this is something that they were called by other people. So what did Christians call themselves uh, up until that time and afterwards? And and what did they call Christianity, uh, a word that isn't used in the New Testament, one that we uh, derive from that? Everybody has a good answer to that. Uh, uh, that's, that's our chat question to this. Um, let's kind of think about some of the things that are going on here. Here's a question to think about. So the church in Jerusalem is looking to send somebody to, you know, to go up to Antioch and to preach. Why didn't they send any apostles? Now, I'm not sure I know the answer to this, so I'm kind of curious what you think. They were busy? That's <laughs> as good as answer as any, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I do know this. While Barnabas wasn't an apostle, he was somebody who they were confident in. Which is the the whole point, and and you might say that he was sent with authority, you know, you know, in in the same way that Paul would send Timothy or Titus or or uh, Luke or whoever else he needed to send, he would send them with authority from him. So so Barnabas had that. You know, Tom, one of the one of the debates I think uh, that we have that that I don't actually understand or know the answer to is the language which calls Barnabas an apostle. Um, and I'm not entirely sure I have a great answer for, for that language and what exactly is meant by that language. So right. uh, I don't know if that has any bearing to this either. Anybody have any other well, thoughts? Well, well, just remember, just remember an apostle by definition is a messenger. You know, Paul, you know, it, the, the word itself means a messenger. Paul kind of says, I like the term ambassador, uh, and I, I've always thought that also fit well to from the descriptive standpoint too. So, right, it's a good point. Anybody else have a thought? So you, so they decide we're going to have to send somebody up to Antioch, and this person is going to have to be somebody who can work with Jews and Gentiles. They sent Barnabas. What what characteristics do we know about Barnabas that kind of made him the right man to send? Well, good man, full of the Holy Spirit, verse 24, and of faith. Um, it's hard to find a better man than, than unless he was an apostle of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Being, being filled with all that goodness, getting going. Even the name yeah. the apostles had given him would indicate that he would be a good person for that job uh, because he was such uh, an encourager or one who could give strong consolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say 
he he knew how to find the best in people. He knew how to be. He knew how to encourage and stand up for people when when uh, others wouldn't. You have the example of that in Paul. You know, seeking to join the brethren in Jerusalem, Barnabas stood up for him, and he was also benevolent. You know, he he was willing to give of himself to help with whatever was needed. That's it. That's a really uh, a really important point, Tom. I think of that a lot when I think of Barnabas. That that he was the guy who could make peace between Saul and the brethren in Jerusalem. So I think maybe there's some way where somebody says he's the logical guy to make peace between Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. If, if we're going to have because it, that Jerusalem isn't going to be a, a blended church like this, but Antioch is. We need somebody who who's good at making peace of seeing the best in everybody. And Barnabas seems to be that guy. Yes. Um, so kind of stepping on a, a little further as we kind of go on here, uh, we have this, uh, the last part of this is this um, statement made here about the um, Agabus coming down. Uh, first of all, does anybody remember where Agabus pops up again later? With Paul. Yeah. Also, yeah. Mike. yeah, in relationship to Paul, uh, being bound, going into Jerusalem bound. Yeah, I think it wasn't it in Caesarea. Oh, go ahead. Wasn't it in Caesarea on after concluding his third journey? How how far along was it that that that, that happened? I mean, you want to guess time wise? Well, toward the end of the third journey, if that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So I, we're probably looking at maybe fifteen, twenty years later. I don't know. Oh yeah, well, if that's mm -hmm. what you mean from a time yeah, standpoint, probably it's kind of interesting to think of Agabus popping up in those two places. Um, why do you think it was important the church needed to know about this, this famine that was coming? What better way to test fellowship among brethren? Okay, so you see that. <laughs> you know, I, I also I also think of the idea that a famine is usually not restricted to a a specific. Uh, uh, a small confined region. It usually is a little broader. I mean, it's not worldwide, but 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 it's a little broader. And and uh, they're not all that far away. They're they're a hundred miles or so, but they're not all that far away. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Brian, um, could it also be that in announcing that there's going to be a famine, that there could be some preparation made so that uh, this. Uh, ordinary natural disaster, I guess, uh, would not inhibit the preaching of the gospel that, that they could, you know, Agabus announces by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. And in doing that here, that they could make sure that they were still ready uh, to take the gospel forth to those who uh, were in need or to those who needed the gospel, as well as those who would be uh, physically in need. You know, that's an important point to think about uh, what was going to happen here. Um, here's another question. Um, where else does Paul uh, seem to write about this event? His, uh, it, it ends that Saul and Barnabas were charged by the elders to take, uh, take this to Judea. Where else do we seem to read about this in the Bible? That too ambiguous? Well, are you talking about first or second Corinthians eight and nine? Could be one reference. Um, well, I wasn't thinking of that passage, uh, but that could be a reference. I was thinking of Galatians, Galatians two. Yeah, Galatians uh, one and two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was thinking of Galatians two, where Paul makes the statement that uh, because of a revelation, he and Barnabas went to Jerusalem. You know, and uh, and I kind of, uh, I I will say I've got, we don't know for sure, but I kind of suspect that this is that same event. Could be, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, so, in Galatians 2, Paul describes himself as being an apostle already. A lot of times we don't know if, you know, we like to put Paul's apostleship in Acts chapter 13. So, we're kind of a, a bit of a conundrum sometimes there, trying to, to hash all that out. I don't, I don't think so, Brian. I, oh, well, <laughs> I've always presumed Paul was an apostle, either from the very point he was chosen when he um, was converted in Damascus, or if nothing else, after his three years in Asia, when uh, when he came back, because in Galatians he talks about how he talked to nobody except maybe Peter and, and James for a short time, 
but how that it came by revelation of our of the Lord. You know, it is it is interesting. He almost in Galatians one describes himself as set apart by his apostleship from birth. Uh, and that could even be also his being born again too. Uh, you know, either way yeah. might might fit to that circumstance. So, John, I I agree. I uh, I think that looking at it that way, it does lead to the idea that his apostleship begins at uh, from the moment of his conversion. You might say so. But whether or not the others recognized it, you're right. That may be Acts 13. Right. Yeah. Um, for the sake of time, uh, we are up at our time, and I think what it will do is, is, unless any, are there any other comments? I don't want anybody to be denied he had something to say, or if you want to tell John he was wrong, I don't want you to be denied that opportunity. So. Uh, but if uh, you know, I, oh, go ahead. Just, just a real quick comment is uh, one of the things Barnabas does is he goes and finds Paul, uh, and 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 we don't know why he does that, but he does. And he brings Paul back to Antioch, and it's kind of interesting in verse 26, you find uh, you find that they're, at, they're with the church there for a year, so they become a part of that church, and they work with that congregation. Uh, I, I, I think that's significant. I think this is a verse that talks about church membership. So, Church membership, associated preachers. There's a lot, actually, in there, isn't there, Thomas? Yes. So. Um. I wish we had more time uh, to, to spend on that because I actually had a few more thoughts uh, about that. But but time is always elusive. And uh, so we're going to jump back to our chat because I know Gregor got us an answer to our question there. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I want to grab that if we can. You so want to YouTube chat. You mean show the question first or just jump straight to his comment? Uh, we'll just jump straight to the answer because the question was, the word Christian being used, you know, are there other words that are used? Gregor grabbed one. Actually, Gregor grabbed one that I was thinking of. In Acts chapter 19, the apostle uh, Paul said he was a practitioner of the way. So uh, it's interesting. The word Christianity, not it's not inappropriate at all because it just describes the way of Christians. Um, Christianity isn't, the word isn't found in the Bible, but Christian is on repeated occasion. But more often than not, that's not what they would describe themselves as. Uh, Peter will later on in his letter talk about being uh, suffering as a Christian, but I like it. I like that uh, Gregor went to one of the statements that's made about being the way, and uh, I. It seems that that might have been a pretty common or popular way of describing Christianity. And Gregor also goes to John 14 to say that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. You know that those all describe that as well. Um, throw it out there real quick. What are some of the terms that Christians called themselves uh, other places? Disciples. Disciples. Disciples is a big one. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's pro- I think disciples, believers, children of God. Those are the they were added to the church, I suppose. Yep. Saints. Saint, saints is another big one. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all terms that uh, we understand would, would be terms they're familiar with that, that we use too. So. So uh, this brings us up to the end of our study now. And uh, so I believe at this time we'll return everything back to John. All right. I appreciate that, Brian. You know, something occurred to me. And I realize one of the reasons why we use the term Christian is because the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. But the term way is only used twice, and the term Christian is only used three times. So had the term way been used a third time, we'd had a tie, and we could call ourselves either one. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. <laughs> um, well, listen, we'd like to thank Great everybody. reasoning skills there, John. <laughs> hey, that's how it works. Uh, we'd like to thank everybody for joining us for our study today. Brian, you did a good job in leading our study, and I appreciate it very, very much. Um uh, no one has yet uh, uh, volunteered to take chapter 12. I put my name down for chapter 13. Um, but if someone would like to take 12, go ahead and fill that in. And we'll, we'll be surprised next week when we go live. Um, I've not taken a chapter in a while, John. I'll, I'll be glad to take chapter 12. Okay. All right. That sounds good. That sounds good. Um, I'm going to try to try to lead the, th- the study on the 13th. Uh, we have a gospel meeting with David Banning. And I'm going to try to get it set up where he can join us for the study if he is so inclined to do so. Um, but we'd like to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us for our study. As we mentioned a while ago, if you have any questions or comments, you can contact us through different means. Uh, we are slowly unifying our branding so that it's all Truth Factor Live. 
You'll see that on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. Uh, but questions and comments can always be sent to questions at truthfactor.com. So take a note of that, especially if you're watching this at a later point in time. All right, if everything goes according to plan, we'll continue our study next week at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. In the United States Eastern Time Zone, it's at noon. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. And 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.